0: This episode is brought to you by Galactic Fed, the award-winning digital marketing agency that I personally use and whose co-founders have both been interviewed on The Maverick Show, Zach Boyette and Irina Popik. Now, I personally use Galactic Fed for search engine optimization and conversion rate optimization, but they also offer services for email marketing, social media, website design, paid media, and more. They're basically a full-service, end-to-end growth marketing solution. And they were founded by two digital nomads as a fully remote company, which now has 150 staff in 27 countries, so they understand remote entrepreneurs. What I love about working with Galactic Fed is, first of all, their team is fun and amazing, and I'm smiling and laughing on pretty much every call that we have, but I also love their scientific approach to growth marketing. They've worked with companies of all sizes and industries, ranging from edible arrangement to pix art, and they've developed battle-tested digital marketing solutions that produce results that are scalable and repeatable. And Galactic Fed now wants to help you grow your business. They're offering you a completely free marketing plan for your business, which you can get at galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And if you do decide to work with them, like I do, just mention the Maverick Show and you'll get 10% off your first month of services. To learn more and get your completely free marketing plan, just go to galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And now, here's a clip from what's coming up on today's episode.
1: That's not the dumbest thing you do that day. So as soon as all the bulls run by, you follow them, and you run into the arena. The arena is packed full of people. Then they close it. And then the people out in the arena in the middle, pile on top of each other, so lay on top of each other in front of a gate. So, they open up the doors and a, a smaller bull comes out, jumps over the pile of humans into the arena, at which point he goes crazy, just demolishing everybody. But the whole goal is to distract him and to jump over the bull, which is crazy. You're running around he see he's knocking into people, but then one guy is distracting him, the bull's looking at him, and his buddy will run around behind him and jump over the bull... <laughs> It's utter chaos.
0: This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Ben Lakoff. He is a serial entrepreneur, a chartered financial analyst, an angel investor, and a world traveler. He built a cryptocurrency exchange in Thailand in 2017 that he scaled and grew into one of the most popular cryptocurrency exchanges in Thailand. He then helped raise two million million dollars through an ICO initial coin offering for his next venture. Today, he is the CEO of Intelligent Trading Foundation, which develops sophisticated tools for cryptocurrency investors. He is also an investor in B-Hub Prague, a business incubator in the Czech Republic. Originally from the United States, Ben speaks fluent Portuguese, Spanish, and English and has lived for extended periods in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Bangkok, Thailand, and Kabul, Afghanistan. Ben was also an Under Armour-sponsored athlete and was named Thailand's fittest man. He now runs his business and manages his team completely remotely while traveling the world, having epic adventures. He has lived primarily outside the United States for eight of the last 10 years, and he's now been to over 60 countries. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey,
1: man thanks for having me
0: so good to have you here my man i'm super excited for this interview just to set the scene you and i have been hanging out now for about two weeks spent about a week in the canary islands and we've now been sort of uh hopping around we just spent the day in casablanca morocco yesterday yeah, it's pretty cool. It was really, really cool. Had you been to Morocco before?
1: I had been there, but um, actually only to Tangiers, which is very much a border town. I was with my family in South Spain. Thought it'd be a good opportunity to take the parents over to Africa for the first time. I don't know if they'll make it back to Africa, so it was a good opportunity.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, I lived in uh, Marrakesh for about a month last year, and then I initially went to Morocco my first time about 2015, so I'd been to Casablanca, oh, nice. but always good to get back to Morocco, man. I do, I do like the vibe a lot, so that was a fun... Uh, uh, that was a fun day super excited to have you here man I, I want to start we have so much really really interesting stuff to talk about but I just want to start sort of you know introducing your backstory a little bit and maybe you could just talk a little bit about where you grew up and initially what got you interested in finance and investing and maybe some of your you know personal finance habits and how you sort of developed that interest growing up sure.
1: I grew up in, in Indiana, Richmond, Indiana. So it's a small Midwestern town, about 35,000 people, and really was quite interested in finance, equities, investing from an early age. It's a little bit of a weirdo. I asked for stocks for my birthday at the age of 16 after finding out about compounding interest, really prioritized saving a lot of my money, putting out as much weight as possible, having good asset allocation, letting that grow with the idea of becoming less dependent on a paycheck as I grow older in my life. But Growing up, I was always interested in that, so it led to me studying finance in school. I was very interested in traveling as well studied Spanish as well was setting up to work as an expat, working in some area of finance after university. awesome
0: and what about your travel passion? Where did that come from as you were growing up and going through your journey?
1: yeah. It's an interesting one. My parents ask me all the time, why the heck do I travel so much, I think. But as a child, we used to travel quite a bit as a family, doing a lot of camping trips around the U.S. So I think from from an early age, the idea of getting out and seeing new things was always ingrained in me. But it was really my sophomore year of university. My sister and I did a backpacking trip through Central America for a, a month or two. And this really opened up my eyes of, you know, we met those travelers that, oh, yeah, I've been on the road for, for two years. I'm down here doing whatever it is they do. So it really opened my eyes to the idea of nomading, vagabonding, long-term travel. I I was a college golfer in, in university. So I, I wasn't able to study abroad. So I always wanted to travel, wasn't able to during school. So when I graduated, I actually opted to take a year off, backpack, do a little bit more longer term traveling and, and and
0: scratch that travel itch a little bit more. That's awesome. So you were a division one golfer in college. That was a huge passion and centerpiece of your life for quite a while. It was a big part of my life for a long period of time. That's for sure. What, yeah. did, that, what did that mean to you? Can you talk a little Bit about golf and sort of what you loved about it and you know what it meant to you yeah. growing up So golf for me
1: growing up, I played a number of sports,
0: but golf was
1: really one of those sports for some reason I just really got obsessed with. I mean, I was the guy in high school, middle school, even do sweepers. We'd be out at the golf course at 6 a.m. practicing, chipping and putting and and working on our game. So it's just something I really got obsessed with. I think I started playing with my dad when I was younger and quickly started playing in more competitive events through high school. We actually, our, our high school team won the state tournament my sophomore year. And then I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go play golf university, which is pretty serious at the division one level. So it had a big part of my life.
0: And uh, post-university, what's your your golf game like now? As a traveler,
1: it's tough to carry around the golf clubs when you're traveling around. So when I lived in Bangkok, I, I did have my clubs out there and I started playing a little bit. But what I realized is some of the happiest times I'm golfing is late in the afternoon in the summer with my dad, golf course all to ourselves, zipping around, playing golf and chatting about life. So that those are like the fun things and getting behind tourists in a sweaty Southeast Asian <laughs> golf course <laughs> was not that passionable, passion piece of golf that I liked. So right. yeah, I found that out real
0: quick. <laughs> right. And so then, okay, so then as you moved into sort of your professional career, because you were in the corporate finance world for many, many, many years before you went to entrepreneurship entrepreneurial route. Yeah, So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and maybe we could just, I'm always curious, you know, how people get into these, you know, sort of location-independent entrepreneurial lifestyle situations. And some people come out of it, you know, right out of the gate, pure, mm-hmm. bred entrepreneur, yeah. and that's what they do from the start. Um, and then, other people, you know, in the corporate world for quite a while, or I mean, I was in the nonprofit space for many, many years until I was 30 years old. You know, and I got fired from my job, and then I was like, I'm going to go the entrepreneurial route now. <laughs> got to so figure it's like, something out. Yeah, so it's like everybody has a everybody has a different journey and a path to getting there. But what was your sort of path and your thinking in terms of going into the corporate finance world, and and what were some of those experiences like?
1: Yeah. So for me, the way that I ended up in corporate finance, even it makes sense now, but it didn't make sense at the time. So I I graduated university, traveled for a year. I was getting a little tired of traveling, bouncing around so much. So I got a job as a bartender in Buenos Aires and actually met a wealth manager who came in for dinner with his wife. And we started talking. I was saying how, you know, it's year 2009. It's not the best time to get a job in finance in Wall Street. And he was saying, I manage money, I actually looked for an intern during the summer. So I ended up sending him my resume and got an internship by that, which was rather serendipitous and, and quite lucky. But then when I ended up home, packing up to move out to the internship, which was in Aspen, Colorado, it was very nice for the summer internship. I played golf with the VP of HR of a big multinational. I, I was obviously talking about my travels. I just got back. I speak Spanish. I've been to all the countries in South America. I love the culture. I want to work down there. And he's saying, yeah, we're, uh, we're actually expanding in South America. And we're always looking for people in finance interested to do the expat sort of thing. If that'd be interesting, send me your resume and I'll put it through and get you an interview. So I actually got an interview, went through the whole process and got a job offer with them before I moved out and finished up my internship in Colorado. So did the internship in Colorado, moved back to Indiana where I started this corporate job. Belden was the name of the company and started with them really with the idea of I wanted to be an expat living and working in South America. I knew at one point I wanted to be more of a, quote, air quotes, digital nomad. But at that point, it was, okay. I want to start my career off. I want to learn as much as I can. And if I can be an expat and live abroad at the same time, experience a new culture, that would be ideal. So that was that was the goal at that point. And for the first part of my career, that was my sole focus was what countries can I work in abroad
0: experience the culture, build my resume, and, and kind of climb the ladder that way. That's awesome. And I think that's also really, really different. I always find that when you have a long-term stay somewhere and Definitely. you actually live in a foreign country, it's so different different than, you know, traveling through at a fast pace. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit about that? You had mentioned briefly a minute ago that you did a backpacking trip for mm-hmm. about a year. Can you talk a little bit about that first, maybe, and what that was like and sort of the college budget, you know, yeah. the, the student budget that you were on and kind of how you uh, you hacked that, And but then also go afterwards into sort of what the differences were f- between that and then actually residing somewhere? Yeah, Definitely. So first part, the travel and the budget sort of mentality.
1: I had done the summer backpacking trip in Central America. So I had a pretty good idea of what the estimated costs were per month. But the problem was I didn't know for how many months I was going to travel. So during my senior year of university, I got a job as a waiter and started saving up as much as I could. So I I saved up a a really good little nest egg and started traveling. But once I got on the road, I realized, hey, this is something that I really like and want to do as long as I can. So I actually started that trip With three months with my brother, finishing up the rest of Central America, which is quite special to do the top half with my sister, the bottom half with my brother, total of five, six months in Central America with my family members. As we kind of went through Central America, I realized, hey, I kind of like the idea of vagabonding and spending a longer period of time on the road, and I'll figure out that the economy was still it was a global financial recession. So by the time I kind of figure this out, I'll come back. The economy will be a little bit better, and I can I can pick right back up where I left off for that whole trip. I guess. The point is, in the first couple of months, I started realizing the more shoestring budget you are, the longer you can travel. So I started calculating it out and getting to these gross numbers of years that you could travel on on the savings that I had
0: saved up. But what, what up, kind of what kind of numbers are we talking yeah. shoestring budget? Were you budgeting at that time in your life? Yeah, my budget was five hundred bucks per month, which is insane. Now I
1: go to my buddy's bachelor party and drop five grand on a weekend. You know, it's 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 pretty gross that you can spend. 11 months traveling sort of thing. I was very much shoestringing. I spent a bunch of time in my tent, couch surfing, hitchhiking, all the things they tell you not to do when traveling. <laughs> I guess That's amazing. So just to be clear,
0: 500 a month includes... Yeah, it includes all the visas and flights and everything else. 500 a month traveling includes all your airfare, accommodations, food, everything.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't take any flights. I mean, I did the whole thing on bus, which right, right, included right. a 72-hour bus or no, it was 36. 36-hour 36 bus. Right. Lots
0: of I had more time than money at that point, you know? That's amazing. Of, yeah. Course, yeah. of course. Of course. <laughs> it was course. great. Though. Yeah. Well, okay. So, and then what were your major sort of takeaways from that trip? After you did that for a year, what did you come away with? What were, so, What was sort of the personal growth or the sort of, you know, realizations that you had or that you took away from that experience? Yeah. I think when you realize how much you actually need to
1: experience the things you want to experience and provide yourself the necessities of food and housing and shelter and all, all, all of this sort of thing. So knowing that if the shit completely hits the fan, that you can scale back your spending and, and go real small is a really
0: good takeaway. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's really significant. And that's why it's so significant for people to spend time, I think, in countries where the cost of living is so much lower. And you just don't need to spend that much money to get your basic necessities taken care of. You know what I mean? It's just you can just live this amazingly sort of minimalist life in a pretty low cost of living area and just have these extraordinarily beautiful natural, you know, landscapes and sunsets and be around amazing people. Yeah. You know, all of the stuff. And if you can do it for so little money.
1: Yeah. I do it for a little bit more money now. I, I I don't enjoy sleeping in hammocks and in tents for the majority of the month. But yes, I agree.
0: Still, though, a lot <laughs> most of the places in the world, even if you travel in a nice way, are a lot cheaper than the United States. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. So so let's talk a little bit about when you actually then moved and you did the expat thing and you were staying in places for eight months, twelve months, you know, that kind of length of time. What was that like? And your first uh, location was Sao Paulo, Brazil.
1: It was, which was coming off the 12 months of travel, 6K, spent the whole year, you know, start my big boy job after the internship, start getting a nice salary. And basically a month or two into the job, they said, hey, we're doing an acquisition in South America, in Brazil. Since you speak Spanish, uh, we want to send you, which of course I said, that's great, but they don't speak Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they said they, they speak Portuguese it's similar and I know some words but not much and they said okay well are you interested in coming or help and helping or not and I said yeah of course so I went down there for a couple week assignment but before I did it I kind of did a, a crash course bought Rosetta Stone and did a bunch of language learning skills for Portuguese so when I got down there I actually was speaking portuñol like a nice mix of Spanish and Portuguese to everybody so of course when we got back they were like yeah Been actually does speak Portuguese. He was speaking to everybody the whole time down there. So that little trip, that due diligence trip, we ended up buying the company. They needed somebody to go down there and help with integration. So they ended up sending me down there for about a year, which was pretty wild. I mean, three weeks down there, one week back in the U.S., business class tickets, like a very different travel
0: lifestyle than what I was used to for that year on the road. Yeah, for sure. And So I feel, and I want to ask what you feel about Sao Paulo, I feel that Sao Paulo is one of the most underrated cities in the entire continent of South America.
1: You know, I haven't been back to Sao Paulo probably now for nine years or so. I loved Sao Paulo so much, and I don't know if it was... A bit of the first love, like first time as an expat living outside the U.S., and not to mention the change in lifestyle from the last time I was in South America. So I have a very great memory of it, but I'm a bit too scared to go back because I might change my mind a little bit. I was just there last year still good. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a huge, huge city.
0: It's huge, but there's so many amazing things about it. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the t- top, first of all, for me, what I appreciate first and foremost, it is one of the top street art cities oh, in yeah. all of South America. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. It is. It's one of the top culinary cities for sure in mm. all of South America. Lima, yeah. Peru is probably the only rival Ooh. to that title I would say but Sao Paulo is like the food is unbelievable and then just I mean you're just walking around on a Saturday and there's just like street parties it's not carnival it's not a festival it's just a Saturday DJs take over the street people I mean it's just the way people live and the way people roll it's just it's unbelievable the traffic is bad though well, I don't <laughs> drive it in the traffic. You said that's the thing. But yes, that's the thing. Fair. I mean, that's what people tell me about, you know, all of these cities. I'm like, yeah, the traffic's bad in New York City, too. Yeah. But guess what? Don't travel I at don't 5 dr- p.m. I don't drive it. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> or just stay where near where you want to go, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And if you're able to structure your lifestyle and yeah. you don't have to drive and commute to an office and do that kind of stuff, then, you know, that stuff God, kind of evaporates. Navigate yeah. around it. So awesome so then so then after sao paulo you also lived for extended periods in couple afghanistan yeah
1: so after sao paulo moved back to the us bounced around a few different jobs in the us lived in colorado But the goal was to go back and be an expat. So I was working primarily in Latin America still at that phase, utilizing, so I was much better at Portuguese, fully fluent at that point in Spanish. So I was working on acquisitions in Latin America still. And basically it became apparent that I wasn't going to move down there as an expat. So it still had a place, but not as the expat, which was what I was looking for. So... Christmas came around, and uh, I grabbed a beer with a, an old buddy that I had worked with previously, and he said, you know, I'm getting engaged, I'm moving back to the U.S., and what are your thoughts on moving to Afghanistan? <laughs> I said, well, I don't normally think about moving to Afghanistan <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, no, in all, in all reality, like this position, head of planning, controlling, and treasury, so basically a controller, deputy CFO of a company in Afghanistan. He said, I'm, I'm moving. He was a few years older than me, very intelligent guy. He said, yeah, you know, uh, they're going to have to fill my position. If this would be something that you'd be interested in, let me know and I'll put in your resume. I said, no, I'm not not interested in moving to Afghanistan. So flash forward a couple months, I was accepting that job in Afghanistan, as you do. So the plan was to do a one-year contract in Afghanistan and then move to this headquarters of this company. It's called RMA Group in Bangkok, Thailand or somewhere in Southeast Asia. So the plan was, this was just a means to the end of going back that expat route. So I ended up doing eight months in Afghanistan, which was pretty wild. So uh, I spent some time in Dubai, but definitely a lot of time in-country in Afghanistan, which was pretty wild.
0: So I've never been to Afghanistan, and I've actually never been to Central Asia mm. in general. Super high on nice. my list. Yeah. I mean, I really want to go through and see There's Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and all these amazing oh yeah. places. I know that I love Afghan food. That I will tell you. Oh yeah. Afghan restaurants, when I find one, I go. Give pe- me like, all period. the bread. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, Afghan food I love. and so, But I've never been there. What was Kabul like? And what was it like for eight months living there? Yeah,
1: it's, it's a war zone. I mean, it definitely is. It's full, get picked up by an armored car, you go through a number of different sweeps and pat-downs and metal detectors, have an armed guard, wear a vest most of the time. We lived in a compound, so lived and worked in the same compound. So not a very high quality of life. I will say that the Afghans are wonderful people. I mean, it's just, just terrible what's happened to their country over the past well, 20, 30 years or whatever. The food is fantastic. The climate is very similar to Denver. So it's actually quite pleasant. It's it's very dry. And the tail end of the Hindu Kush, you can see the view from the city. So it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's not very safe.
0: Yeah. So then so then after that, was Thailand your next major long term stay? Yeah. So I moved to Thailand and
1: from there I, I lived there for three and a half, four years. So working as an expat for an American company, we were essentially a holding company of 95 legal entities. So I was the head of planning and controlling for them. A lot of acquisitions, divestitures, strategy, budgets, forecasts, all of that stuff was going through me
0: and my team. Right. And then you were based in Bangkok. Yeah. Awesome. And while you were there, this was also sort of where a lot of your entrepreneurial development ultimately happened as you transitioned out of corporate yeah. in Thailand, right? Yes. So Thailand has a pretty significant role in your it does life and it does. And you were an underarmored sponsored athlete and you were named Thailand's fittest man. Yeah. How did that come Let's talk about that first. Yeah and then we'll, <laughs> and then I want to get into the kind of the entrepreneurial transition. But talk about how the under armored sponsorship came about.
1: Yeah, so um, when I was in Bangkok, I, I got really into fitness. Fitness has always been quite important in my life, always a, a more of a consistency is the key sort of thing. So ever since early, even middle school and then college, with golf, fitness always played a, a very central part of my life. So when I moved to Bangkok, part of what I do when I move to a new city to meet new friends, it's kind of difficult as a mid-25-year-old or 28-year-old or whatever I was. Um, I joined a CrossFit gym and get into the community. And so I, I got real into CrossFit while I was there, probably in an unhealthy way, but really enjoyed it, really made it a big part of my life. And there was a competition Under Armour-sponsored sort of workout, CrossFit-esque. And yeah, I ended up winning. So there's like 5,000 people tried out. So I ended up being the fittest man in Thailand for that. And then represented Thailand in this regional competition where I got second. But I lost to a guy that is... He's so fit. I mean, he just... Crush me. <laughs> actually he didn't he didn't crush me by much, but yeah, he's much fitter than I. But the, the the key was I was I was working in an office job. Come on. Like all these other people are like professional <laughs> athletes. I was clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
0: And then what did what did the sponsorship entail?
1: Yeah, it just entailed photo shoots, showing up at events and wearing only under armor clothing whenever I'm in and around a gym.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's nice. All my travel gear, all my rain gear, all my
0: Underwear. You know, everything is Under Armour still. So That's it's amazing. Great. So I feel like Thailand really is this magical place in many ways that gives rise or redirection to entrepreneurs and digital nomads. And there's so many people, including many that I've interviewed on this podcast, that have Thailand origin stories. Yeah, you know? I can imagine. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about your Experience in Thailand and what the entrepreneurial transition was. And maybe just talk a little bit about the mindset of why did you choose? to leave the corporate finance world and go into an entrepreneurial direction. Yeah. Um, I'm super interested in that because I I feel like a lot of people don't do that. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not, you know, they're not entrepreneurs or they, they don't feel that they, that that's the right move for them. So for you, what was that transitionary thought process? Like how did you decide to go in that direction?
1: Yeah. So I was a little bit different story, I think coming in as an expat and, but in Thailand there's so much entrepreneurship, happening. I mean, not even in the expat community, but the ties are quite entrepreneurial as well. And even the company I was working for is still private. The guy started it 40 years ago, had over a billion dollars in revenue. I mean, pure entrepreneurship ran through the blood of the company. So each 95 legal entities, each country, a cluster of legal entities pretty operated in an entrepreneurial fashion. It was, it was pretty much encouraged. So it was in and around me so much, uh, and I just realized that this isn't the path that I want within the corporate world. I wanted to do something a little bit different, control my destiny a little bit more than, than coming in and, and, and punching in the clock. Started doing a lot of research, meeting with a lot of people, doing a lot of meetups, uh, and really spreading my network within the entrepreneurial network of Thailand.
0: While you were still working at your job. So that's the other thing that I want to talk about is how you actually did the transition in terms of what were you doing on the side while you were doing your job? How did you sort of structure that? What did that piece look like? How long did it go for and so forth? Yeah. So I basically at the
1: end of 2016, I started doing personal annual reviews, which was interesting. I was doing annual reviews for my team for their bonuses and things like that. And, you know, we're going through, what did you do well? What do you want to improve on? These areas, these objectives, how did you do? And I thought, this is so weird that I've never done this for my personal life. Like, how have I never done this? I do it for work every single year. I sit with my boss and I say, these are my goals. This is what I want to do. Like, what a doofus not having this for my personal life. So I went through the process and I really started like deep diving, you know, what do I want? What have I done well? Where is this path? I'm on going to take me? And if it's not what I want to do, what do I need to do better? And then so reviewing backwards and then setting goals going forwards. So as a result of that, I started doing a number of exercises, mental exercises and and thought processes around that. I actually started a book club with a bunch of friends doing the design your life book, doing all the, the exercises in that. So basically plotting out where you want to go, what you want sort of thing. So my What I found out I wanted was to be more of an entrepreneur. So being an extremely conservative person financially, you know, I didn't want to leave my paycheck or anything like that. So the, the plan was to dabble as much as I can before leaping in headfirst. So at that point, I started a young venture capitalist club with a few people that I had met. So the idea was that we would invest in early stage startups and, and, and learn by investing, like having an advisor role within those. So I was working with a couple startups But then the valuations were all funky and we couldn't really get the deal flow we needed, I guess. So we ended up launching small business ideas and and trying out those sorts of things. So we ended up, I started 10 businesses that year, just trying different things. I mean, we were importing air purifiers and trying to sell them because there was bad air pollution or trying drop shipping, a number of different little things. So just testing everything, learning, finding out what it is I'm passionate about, what it, what it is I'm, I'm good at, and kind of trying to pair those things into something that would make sense. So during that year, that was that was kind of the year that we started trading cryptocurrencies, made early investments in a currency exchange, raised the money via the token sale for our company. So it was a quite transformative year that year before I even quit my job.
0: So this was all, you were still working a full-time job. I was. And you were doing all of this on the side. Yeah, I did not sleep much. So 2016, I was
1: the fittest man in in Thailand. And then 2017, I was a crazy workaholic who never slept.
0: Wow. So you would work your your regular job for the whatever, nine to five or eight to seven to seven? Seven to seven. Well, like eight to eight, normally, eight Eight. to seven. Okay, you work eight to eight, and then you come home. Uh, most and of the time, I do, just go straight to do, Starbucks. Or to Starbucks. Yeah. And then you just work on your businesses at night.
1: Yeah, I have a real issue with working from home. Yeah. Uh, so I I designate some space as my workspace, and uh, the closest place with good Wi Fi that was open twenty four seven was Starbucks. As much as I hate it, it's consistent, right? It has water, has coffee, it has plugs, it has Wi Fi. So went there nearly every night, and that was kind of the battlefield, I guess.
0: Yeah. And so you decided to basically test out an experiment with 10 different business ideas. Yeah. And then how did that play out? What were the results? How did you assess them and then narrow down your focus? Yeah. So all
1: of them were sort of viewed as learning opportunities, I guess. I was very much learning. I mean, I I had seen from a management point of view, P&Ls, financial statements of all these different legal entities and in these different structures and seen how different people had grown their business. But it's very different when you're at the helm, right? And you're making all the decisions and very different when you're building a brand, a community, a product from scratch. So it was throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, I guess, in a sense. But it, it was really, really fun, interesting
0: learning process through all of it. What did you learn from it? Can you talk about some of your key takeaways and then what you did with the learnings and how you applied them? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, one of them, just basic things now, like one of them, we were going to import protein shakes, like uh, single-use protein shakes, which I hated that you'd just throw those in the river or whatever and <laughs> pollution like crazy. But The idea was that even though the gross margin was high from a percentage standpoint, it's so low from a dollar standpoint that it's just such a volume business. And if if you don't have the proper distribution channels, I mean, it's going to be impossible to or very difficult to make any sizable amount of net profit at the end of the day. So little things like that were very interesting, but just learning the ins and outs of how do you put together a quick business plan and what things are important? What what skills do you need to add to the team to kind of get these things up and, and going quickly?
0: Yeah, and so then after you tested out all 10 of those business ideas and those business plans and you saw the results of them and you learned the lessons from each of them, what was your process for moving forward from there? What was your next step?
1: Basically funding. I mean, I, 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 was, I would still be tinkering, but uh, funding dictated which projects I need to put more of my time into. And fortunately, my passions include investing in finance. So fortunately, the ones that did get funding
0: or or became more successful were right up that alley. And can you talk a little bit about the cryptocurrency exchange and how you built that? But maybe just start really from the very beginning um, and just explain what is cryptocurrency for people that are not in that space? And then what is a cryptocurrency exchange? And what is it exactly that you built and how you added value to the marketplace with with that company? Cryptocurrency in its most basic form is something
1: like Bitcoin, the most common one that everybody knows. So it's a digital asset that's cryptographically secured. So it's decentralized. It's not backed by any government. So it's something that's very interesting that came about in 2008, 2009. And for me, I I just got very interested in these not that early on. I mean, my sister asked me about it probably in 2011 or 12. And at this time, I was working at JP Morgan. I was like, put your money in stocks. Don't put any money in that crazy cryptocurrency stuff, which she still you know, reminds me of to this day, but um, got more into it late 2016, started doing a lot of research. And it's like the thread in your sweater. As soon as you start picking at it, you kind of start unraveling all, all of these things and start digging in, going down the, the rabbit hole, as they say. So got really, really interested And then the cryptocurrency exchange, what that is, is it's just a marketplace for buyers and sellers to exchange these cryptocurrencies. So right now there's over 2,000 different types of cryptocurrencies serving a number of different purposes. But these exchanges are a central marketplace to buy and sell them.
0: Okay. And so how did you... Decide and how did you come up with a way to differentiate your company and your exchange that you were building and to make that successful and profitable and one of the most popular exchanges in Thailand now?
1: Yeah, it's difficult, and especially now, it's essentially a red ocean. There's so many cryptocurrency exchanges out there. It's very difficult to stand out. So we were one of the main two crypto exchanges in Thailand at that time, converting Thai bot, which is a local currency, into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So yeah, it was a it was a long slog. I mean, UI, UX, security, these things are all important, but everybody's focusing on them. So good customer service, and to be honest, it's still still struggling to compete with these. Bigger, more international, well funded
0: companies, uh, crypto exchanges. Now, at what point did you, dis- on your entrepreneurial journey of these side hustles, did you decide to actually leave? The corporate world and focus full time on the entrepreneurial stuff. What was for you that that moment where you made the entrepreneurial leap and you decided to transition? Yeah, so after the success of our token sale, we raised two million
1: dollars. That was when I decided that you know it's probably safe to quit quit my job, but I had a two and a half three month notice period, so you quit and then you have to work another couple months. So I wanted to help them get through budget season anyways. But um, yeah, so I didn't leave until early December and we finished our token sale in September.
0: Okay, so so today you are the CEO of Intelligent Trading Foundation, um, which is what you raised the $2 million for, right? Which develops sophisticated tools for cryptocurrency investors. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what the company actually is, is doing and developing? Yeah, sure. What we started was selling trading
1: algorithms for cryptocurrency traders. So this was, we were trying to solve the problem of you log into these exchanges, there's 2,000 cryptocurrencies. What one should you buy and what one should you sell? This was the problem we were working on. We had a, developed a number of different strategies and different mediums for consuming these alerts. So like a simple text message, it would say, hey, this price has just done this. And based on our algorithms, it could be bullish. It could maybe go up. But it was up to the the investor to pull the trigger on that. So that was our first product The second product, we automated that. So instead of you pulling the trigger, it would execute the trade automatically. So automated algorithmic trading for traders. And now we are more along the lines of portfolio management. So with cryptocurrencies, I believe that they are very important. Cryptocurrencies tokenized securities, these will continue to grow in importance and popularity and earn a place in most investors' asset allocations. So for me, it depends on every investor, but you need to have a little bit of your net worth put in cryptocurrencies. It makes sense. They're uncorrelated to other asset classes, and maybe it goes to zero, but maybe it doesn't. So I think the risk-reward ratio is quite good on it. And if you put 1% of your wealth and it goes to zero, I mean, you're not out on the street, right? So our next product, ITF Portfolios, is really about helping investors get invested. So you put in money, it allocates it to a basket of cryptocurrencies. We're adding algorithms that will sense a downturn in the market, pull a little bit of money out. So intelligent downside risk protection, all with the idea of helping get more investors invested in cryptocurrency.
0: OK. And what I mean, how should people think about if, if they're not yet invested in cryptocurrency and maybe they just have kind of like a peripheral news headline view, you know, Bitcoin and some of these things soaring up in value yeah. at astronomical rates and then crashing, de- you know, like yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of there's sort of, I think, a, a roller coaster perception from the headlines. Definitely. What is your take uh, as you look at the long term view? I mean, going back a decade, you know, go, looking forward a decade and stuff like that. What have people been seeing? What has been happening in the cryptocurrency market? and where is it going?
1: Yeah, so the long-term trend since Bitcoin's inception is up. But last year was nasty. I mean, I've never held an asset that it's gone down by 70, 80% ever. You know, I was the guy, very important, putting a lot of my wealth in a number of different assets. And yeah, if a stock pulls back in 5% in a day, you know, I'm losing sleep over it sort of thing. So to have something go down by 80%, it's definitely changed my risk tolerance. And uh, now I put money in stocks, you know, it goes down by 10%. percent like, yeah, yeah. That happens in a day in Bitcoin, right? But for me, it's just the risk return. I mean, do your own research, go into this thing. But there's a lot and a lot of potential about crypto. And I don't want to go into the nitty gritty details. But I think it makes sense from a diversification standpoint. Have a little bit. Get you invested. Get you following it. Do a little bit more research. And you might like what you see and start putting a little bit more more in at that point.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that you are also personally investing in. You do angel investing as well, right? Can you talk a little bit about your approach to angel investing and what you look for in new early stage startups? How do you assess them? What types of companies do you invest in? Yeah. So for investments, I'm I'm
1: interested in a number of different things. So I bucket things into traditional finance, traditional assets, and alternative assets. So within alternative assets, I've gone pretty deep. These th- include things like cryptocurrencies, real estate, peer-to-peer loans, a number of different things. So with angel investing, that just falls into this bracket as well. It's it's quite risky, very, very risky. And the few investments that I have made, it's mostly about team Potential and there is a bit of gut feel, right? I mean, the financials are mostly pie in the sky. You're gonna you're gonna be a unicorn in two years, sort of thing. So it's uh, what's your gut feel? It's the chemistry with
0: the the founding team, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how do you identify those companies, though? Like, what is the process for you to approach, find, and then assess sort of these companies? Do you get pitched? Are you, are you in a space where they're finding you? Like, what's your process for identifying the companies that you actually do the angel investing with?
1: Yeah, I've
0: scaled back. So most of it was angel clubs or venture clubs sort of thing to,
1: to get the different deal flow. But to be honest, I'm working in a startup I'm investing in cryptocurrency with my career. So from a risk perspective, I feel that my my future income is quite risky. So I've scaled back and, and most of my investments now are a little bit more defensive and less risky.
0: And what was the uh, latest investment you and I were just uh, you and I were just talking about a minute ago? Well, yeah. So, <laughs>
1: sometimes I make it, uh, exceptions. So I, I have a buddy that has a production company. So I've been investing in small indie films, which is interesting. It's something it's something I've always been interested in. He's a really good friend, and uh, he he does some great things. So want to see what he has.
0: That's amazing. I love the diversification aspect and your willingness to experiment in a lot of these different places and see how it goes. And of course, I think you have to have some level of, you know, uh, variation in terms of certain risks, as you mentioned, right, with certain assets in your portfolio are going to be very high risk, but also potentially very high return.
1: Definitely. You know, and and then even factoring in your income, right? So somebody in a government job that's very secure, they have a pension that's waiting for them. Well, maybe it makes more sense that their extra cash goes into more speculative investments.
0: For sure. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, let me ask you, I want to just kind of go through, because you have a lot of business expertise in a lot of different areas. Some of it comes out of your entrepreneurial experience. A lot of it comes out of your corporate finance experience, and you were at a pretty high level there in managerial responsibilities and really focusing on different aspects of the company. So I just want to kind of draw out a little bit of your advice and tips in a couple different areas. And the first one is just your take on account- Cash flow improvement. So, when you go in and you look at a business and you look at the financials, what are some of the things that you look at if you were to try to help a business improve their cash flow? And I know in some cases you are dealing with really large businesses, but you also have the small business and startup experience as well. So, what are some principles there um, or advice that anybody from small businesses on up could, should should be focusing on?
1: Yeah, interesting question. I think it really depends on the type of business. So with my corporate experience, a lot of it, we, we had a lot of low hanging fruit or money sitting on the balance sheet. So getting your inventory levels better or, or going after your shorter term assets, so accounts receivable and things like that. So those would be quick ways to improve your cash flows. But then obviously you can attack the, the P&L and see, you know, is it a cost issue? Is it a revenue issue? And then address those problems
0: separately. Right, for sure. And then for for startups in particular, um, or small businesses, let's say as well, Can you talk a little bit about this concept of the lean startup and, you know, what tips you have, both from your experience being an angel investor in startups and also being an entrepreneur yourself? What types of things should business founders and startup CEOs and even small business owners be focused on with respect to cash flow, with respect to key performance indicators, and sort of getting out of the gate with those early stage business plans?
1: Yeah, So what makes a a startup successful? It's having a product so good that everyone spontaneously tells their friends about it. That's what it is. There's a a number of other things, but ultimately having a a product that customers love and are happy to tell their friends about with or without a referral program. So that's the biggest thing with most startups is finding that elusive product market fit. I'm still trying to do it with all of my startups, right? I mean, it's it's a constant slog. Are we building before we've validated a product? Are we building the solution to the customer's burning problem? Do we even understand their problem? So these, these are the biggest things and most important KPIs early, early on. What
0: is the process for doing that? How does someone go about Finding product market fit, but also then continuing to refine and continuing to improve and continuing to test. Like, how are you? How have you gone about that? And how have you seen startups that you've invested in go about that? What tips do you have? Man, that's the billion dollar idea.
1: We're still trying to find product market fit for a number of these. The key is really, really understanding the problem and not not going after the solution that people are proposing to you, but really thinking outside the box and saying, you know, how how can you attack this problem
0: at its root? Can you talk also a little bit about scaling and staffing and managing a team? Because I feel like those are really important concepts, and some people go at them at very, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, I see mistakes on sort of both extreme ends of the spectrum, right? The people that fall into sort of the self employment trap where they're almost doing all this stuff themselves and they're not outsourcing and scaling and building systems and processes the way that they could be more efficient for them. But then other people, I think, are too quote unquote growth focused in terms of staff and they're building up taking on too much staff too quickly. And that's creating an you know efficiency problems and stuff like that. So what are your sort of thoughts and experiences on scaling and staffing and how to think about actually building and growing a business?
1: Yeah. So I think with that, it's wear a number of hats before you hire somebody. So there's there's the admin overhead that you don't anticipate of hiring somebody. So there's not only the training time, but there's the other things that take up a lot of time. So it's not like you hire another person and instantly you're twice as fast, right? You just, you gain a little bit of speed, but after that ramp up onboarding sort of thing, and then if they're not a good fit and they leave, then from a longer period, I mean, it really slows you down. So really on these initial hires, making sure they're a great cultural fit, they're in it, for the longer period of time so you're not turning over staff. So that's that's the really really important factors.
0: And what tips do you have about management? And I know you've done management both in a capacity where you're working for a large corporation and you're, mm. you know, managing people that are underneath you and you're sort of a mid-level or deputy level or you know, in a large corporation and then obviously you've also done it as the CEO of your own business and you're managing a team right now. Can you talk a little bit about first of all general management skills and yeah. techniques and what 's important for managing other human beings and then I also want you to talk about remote management of a distributed team yeah, so general management tips would be autonomy
1: with your with your staff, so hiring in a little bit more senior people that can operate with some autonomy um, you give them the power you know this is your domain. This is how this contributes to the bigger vision. You can do whatever you want within this little yard. You know, I'm here. I'm your cheerleader. I'm here to help you. But ultimately, you're the master of this little part of your world, right? So that seems to help out a lot its communication, trust, those are very very important. Then when going to remote leadership, it's also very difficult, right? It's uh you don't have that interaction where you walk past their desk and you see that they're working on something that was completely different from what you thought. So instead they they finish it up, they send it to you, they share it with you and you say, "Hey, that's not what I was thinking." Like, "What were you thinking? Did I not explain this clearly? Am I way off? Like, let's let's talk through this." So remote adds some difficulties, definitely. We're still learning out how to do it in the most effective way possible. But the the key is communication. So not being afraid to jump on the phone, share a screen, share some screenshots. This is what I'm looking at. This wasn't clear. This is what I'm planning to do. You know, So having those multiple touches during the week, this is what I'm focused on to, to try to tap the boat back in place before it gets too far off.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the communication is so, so, so important. And to some extent, I feel that Having a remote managerial setup and a distributed team in many ways forces us to communicate better. Definitely. Because I feel like if we're in person, there's so many just kind of crutches we can rely on. And Definitely. we don't have to really build that system and process so clearly. And we don't really have to, you know, but if you're remote managing people, I feel like in many positive ways, it actually pushes you to really refine in the precision of your systems, your processes, and your communication. Because it's the only way you can be effective. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which I feel like is an advantage in many ways to, to a business to do it that way.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's a number of tools that exist. I mean, we use Asana, which is a good project management. We use Skype. So nothing too crazy or wild, but a number of these tools exist to kind of help manage that workflow as
0: well. Let me ask you this. How should business founders, startup founders, people that are trying to grow a business, think about the choice between bootstrapping and raising investment capital for their business? When should someone potentially raise investment capital? Should they? Should they not? What is that thought process for a business leader?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one as well. For me, I was fortunate with all these projects to have really good strong partners. So with similar financial principles. So from a bootstrapping perspective, it's not so much complete bootstrap, you know, you have a hundred dollars to launch this business that we have savings that we want to allocate to startups and angel investing and, you know, allocate it to your own. So that was very fortunate having having that network and those partners early, early on. But it really depends on the goal of the business. Do you want this to be a venture-backed company that you're basically growth until you IPO or explode? Or do you want it more of a lifestyle business? Do Do you want to sell it to somebody? What are the goals? And then going back to the partner's Do those goals align with the partners that you're working on this project? So those are very important and have to be answered before you can kind of say, do I want to bootstrap or do I want to raise funding? And then with funding, I mean, we were a bit of an exception with the fact that we hadn't quite found product market fit and we're fortunate enough to raise funding. Normally, you wouldn't raise funding until you have generated enough traction and product market fit that it makes sense, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. So if someone decides that they do want to pitch investors and try to raise funds, what tips do you have for how to deliver a good pitch? How to set it up, create the right pitch deck, and deliver the right pitch? Yeah, network. I mean, in person, that's that's a huge
1: one. VCs, these funds, investors, they get tons and tons of pitches every day. So if you're just guy behind the internet, Behind the email, it's it's very difficult. So assuming you can meet these people in person or get some sort of warm introduction, there there's loads of good Google actually has a pretty decent Google Slides format, investor pitch deck, you know, what's your vision, what's the problem, what's your team look like, how much are you asking for? All those key essentials should be included.
0: Mm-hmm. And what do you want? What, what really moves you? So let's say that you know people in person, they're kind of in your network, mm. but you're still going to evaluate the business idea, Definitely. obviously. Yeah. So what really moves you to green light or say, yes, I'm, I'm going. going to go with this? Yeah. Gut actually plays quite a bit into
1: it. Yeah, so looking through the business plan and what their what their vision is with all of that, all of that is really important, but ultimately the the final call is get how do I feel about them as a
0: manager growing a business, all of those things. Yeah, that's awesome. So, all right. So you are now running your business entirely remotely. You're traveling the world. We, You and I are going to be in Portugal tomorrow. We've been going through multiple countries, all that kind of stuff. I want to talk to you a little bit about your travel experiences because you have done some really, really epic, <laughs> epic stuff. And I want you to share a little bit about it. So we're in uh, Spain right now, and I understand that you have have done the legendary running of the bull in Pamplona. I did. Can yeah. you talk about that experience and basically if somebody if people haven't heard of that, can you say basically what it is, like sure. what the context is and then what that experience was like for you? Sure. So it all started
1: in middle school. And so in the U.S., you so middle school means 5th, 6th, 7th, or no, 6th, 7th, 8th grade in the U.S. So you're probably 12 years old or so in 7th grade. And when we were taking Spanish class, we learned a bit about Spanish culture. So there were two things that I always wanted to do from that age. And one was tomatina, which is the end of August. It's the big tomato fight. I'm not even sure where it is, but you basically run around the streets and throw tomatoes at each other sounds awesome and the running of the bulls so the running of the bulls is terrible they run in and so what it is is bullfights in pamplona are still a cultural thing so they still allow them but to get the bulls into the arena They actually start them, I forget how far away it is, but they run them down this alley into the arena where they do the bullfights. But they allow spectators to run in front of the bulls with the bulls into the arena. So it was pretty wild. Uh, I got a few of my really good friends involved uh, to do a little road trip through Spain. And it's insane. I mean, the running of the bowls part, so so you line up, you get ready, it's uh, I think at 8 o'clock, seven, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, which Pamplona is a huge party, you know, it, it, it's San Fermin Festival, It's everybody's running around drinking a lot of red wine, uh, so you wake up really early, we didn't drink the night before because we're running away from bowls, you know, and it's they let you out a little bit before you go down the alleyway and this is the standard like spanish the beautiful alleyway sort of thing and everybody's lining their uh, balconies it's pretty surreal but then you hear the cannon and you know the bulls are coming you are out there with i don't know how many how many how many people that are running all dressed in white with the red uh, bandana it's really cool but then everybody starts kind of jumping looking back so trying to see the bulls coming and then somebody inevitably starts running a little bit too early so so you think the bulls are coming? So everybody starts running. It was just chaos. I mean, it's exactly what you'd think it'd be. Like, so we all turn and start running, and of course, like somebody falls down right in way. Like we're dragging him out of the way, trying to get out. People everywhere, and then everybody just kind of pushes you, and you get pushed to the side, and then all the bulls run by. <laughs> like super fast. So we're like, what the hell is that it? So we just like, you know, run out keep running behind him and then we think there's another bull behind us so you run over to the side so it's crazy and I'm very glad I only did it once because the second time you know, you'd be a little bit more risky and you'd like, oh I'm gonna stay out a little bit more in the center a little bit closer. I want to touch the bull when he runs by sort of thing and I I probably would have been killed so I'm glad I, I, I didn't do that. But the crazy thing is, so that's not the dumbest thing you do that day so as soon as all the bulls run by, you follow them and you run into the arena. The arena is packed full of people. Then they close it. And then everybody stays in the center of the bullfighting arena. You've got people everywhere going crazy. And the people out in the arena in the middle, pile on top of each other, so lay on top of each other in front of a gate. And we're like, what the heck is this? We didn't do much research, it was not very smart. So I'm like, what the heck is this? They open up the doors and a, a smaller bull comes out, jumps over the pile of humans into the arena, At which point he goes crazy because there's a bunch of people running around distracting it. So he's running around just ramming into people, but he's got like plugs on his horns, So he's not goring anybody, but just demolishing everybody. But the whole goal is to distract him and to jump over the bull, which is crazy. So the bull jumps over humans to get in there with a bunch of humans. You're running around. He's knocking into people. But then one guy is distracting him. The bull's licking at him and his buddy will run around behind him and jump over the bull. (laughs) (laughs) it's utter chaos we we had
0: a great time (laughs) that is that is incredible wow but you've done a number of other amazing things you actually did the hike to everest base camp from nepal yeah what was that like that was a fun one how did that come about yeah yeah
1: same same sort of thing. From an early age, I've always been mountaineering, rock climbing, out in the mountains hiking. So Everest was always that thing that I wanted to see. So it never really appealed to me climbing Everest. Uh, it's a little commercialized now or whatever. But I still wanted to see it, wanted to be in the Himalayas doing the hiking. So planned a trip during a vacation when I was working in Thailand, convinced my sister and her boyfriend to come with me and... We decided to do the three-pass loop, which I think is 22 days. But, of course, I didn't have that much time off for work, so we had to cram it into 17 or 18 days. So we planned out the whole thing. Didn't do it with a porter or a guide. Oh, yeah, we can do all of this. So did the, did the hike, so you go over three passes that are over 5,000 meters and hit space Camp, obviously. So it
0: was really cool. Wow. And so what happened did, when you tried to cram it into 17 days? What did you have to do differently, and what what yeah. was the result of that? We took every
1: single pill or thing that was that that we read would help with acclimatizing faster. Because the biggest thing is you're taking out the acclimatization days, so you're moving up from a relatively low altitude in Thailand, to a relatively high altitude, over 5,000 meters, in a quick period of time. So doing as much as we could to speed that up was the priority to make it all work the way that it needed to.
0: And how did it go? What was the hike like?
1: It was awesome. We had one little snafu, but the rest was
0: very beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. You also did the rick- the rickshaw run across India, where you basically race a auto rickshaw, from one side of the country to another, Yeah, what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a company called The Adventurists, and they they organize these kind of crazy adventure races. It's not a race, but kind of a race all over the world. So I did my first one in South America in 2009, and then a couple years ago did the rickshaw run in India. So what this is is uh, you jump in an auto rickshaw or tuk tuk looking thing, and we drove it from Rajasthan to, from Jaisalmer to Shillong, which is so basically the border of Pakistan to the border of Myanmar. I forget how many kilometers it was or how long it took, but it was pretty cool, you know. And they say the one thing you can't do is drive at night, which the roads are really dangerous or whatever. So of course, the first day we. Destroyed one of the rickshaws in our little convoy of three. So we had to tow one of them, which of course destroyed the other one. So we're real stuck. Uh, so we fixed one, we're able to tow one at a very slow speed. So of course we drove until like two o'clock in the morning the first day. <laughs> which was ridiculous. And then had to load the broken one into a dump truck uh, and ended up sleeping in the dump truck the first night.
0: It was a a good start. Good start to a fun adventure. That's amazing. That's amazing. And what was the overall impression of India? I mean, throughout that experience, when you saw the country and experienced it. Yeah,
1: I'd been there before, but this was a very unique way of seeing a big portion of it. So a group of three auto rickshaws driven by white guys is kind of a spectacle i guess so you can't really blend in wherever you're going you're the bunch of idiots on a rickshaw lost somewhere in india so it was a really flash through most of india but we got to see all sorts of different things Saw so the taj mahal a lot of Rajasthan, darjeeling varanasi like got to see all sorts of india which is a fascinating massive country
0: yeah, it is absolutely huge. I've been there a couple times, and I feel like I've only seen a tiny fraction oh, yeah. of it. But I also feel like it has the best food in the world. So It is. But I tell you
1: what, after a couple weeks, all you want is like a plain chicken breast and fries. It's like, I don't <laughs> want all
0: of these wonderful flavors. Yeah, and I love Indian food. Yeah, I love Indian food, too. That's amazing. But, okay, so you said you did your first event with the company in South America in 2009. Can you talk a little bit about what that was, what was the event what was the experience and what was that like? Yeah, so this was
1: this was my first run in with with these adventure races and it was it was pretty intense. Uh, I should have looked up the stats before this, but we went from Lima, Peru, to Asuncion, Paraguay. And basically, my parents had met me down to do Machu Picchu together. And I, right before they came, I met a group of people that were doing this race in a hostel. I played ping pong with one of the guys. And they were like, yeah, you know, we have an extra space. You should come. And I was like, I, I, I don't know, guys. Like, whatever. I'll meet you here after my parents left. So they started in Lima. I was in Cusco. Did Machu Picchu and then they came through Cusco and basically I, I
0: Decided to go with them, so they picked me up on the way. And this is basically like the same. You're basically racing a tuk tuk. Like I mean, this an auto thing rickshaw was like not, not fit for the road. <laughs> so this was yeah.
1: the first time they'd done this, and I think it might have been supposed to be a tuk tuk, but essentially it was some crappy Chinese bike with like a bench in the back. So it was it was more of a the rickshaws with a motorcycle with like the wagon of two seats behind it. That a type of, of auto rickshaw. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that thing was. Not made to go six thousand kilometers or whatever we did. I, I think it, it took us like over two weeks. I mean, we slept in an abandoned hotel. We slept in a mayor's backyard. We slept in a fire department, the the, the firehouse. It was epic. Really, really good. We did some crazy things, like you know, I was telling you we drove it down the world's most dangerous road in Bolivia. There were a lot of fun adventures with that one.
0: Which is an incredibly epic experience that I did, but I did it on a mountain bike with a guided tour, right? So the world's most dangerous road in Bolivia, I mean, just to contextualize that for people, it, it has the name and sort of the lore of that because it used to be the only bypass road that cars and trucks could get from one part of Bolivia to another. So trucks that are like bringing produce and cars that are coming and it's basically like a, a one-lane, one-car-length road that has basically a thousand-foot drop-off with oh, no yeah. guardrail. It's just crazy. And so, and so what would happen is the cars would try to pass each other on the road, and it would be like the rainy season. And one car would just go over the edge and fall off the cliff. And so they, there would be 300 people a year dying on this road because of that. Now, about 10 years ago, they built a bypass road like a highway for Thank the cars God. and the trucks to drive on yeah. <laughs> yeah so now so now the cars and trucks don't usually drive on this road anymore it's mostly for mountain bike tours and stuff like that which is what I did which was totally amazing because the scenery is just i mean it's basically like a 60 kilometer downhill ride it descends over ten thousand feet or whatever the number is exactly but basically you start up at the top and it's snow-capped mountains and it's gorgeous scenery but you've got all your winter gear on hats and gloves and coat and everything and then as you're descending down you're sort of shedding layers and by the time you get down to the bottom of it in the afternoon you're in shorts and a t-shirt you're in a rainforest oh yeah I mean, it's pretty it's, wild. It's gorgeous. Can you imagine it's going amazing. down that
1: thing in a bus?
0: My God. <laughs> I, I can't imagine going down it in an auto rickshaw well, yeah. like you did. Yeah. It's
1: a lot more narrow than a bus though,
0: thank <laughs> yeah, God. That's but true, yeah, that's it's true. also the brakes were not trustworthy. <laughs> yeah. That is amazing, man. Unbelievable. And then recent more recently you went to a scuba diving trip in Komodo Island. I did. I want to hear about that because I've never been to Komodo Island. I have heard it is an incredibly unique place. So can you say like what that is and, and what that experience was like?
1: Yeah. So it's an island in Indonesia. So I had gone down to Lombok, which is one of the islands, not not Bali. It stayed for a little bit and actually ended up rather spontaneously taking a boat, which was four days maybe, to, to Komodo from there. It was always a dream to see Komodo dragons and scuba dive there which is fantastic. The dragons thing was from an early age when there was an advert saying there was dragons at the zoo so I pestered my mother to take me to the zoo forever thinking that there were big fire breathing winged dragons at the zoo so when we got there apparently I was like what the hell's that thing? It's just a big lizard. <laughs> like where are the dragons? <laughs> this is bullshit. So uh, yeah, so yeah. But I wanted to see them in the wild, anyways. But the scuba diving, diving there is really, really fantastic. It was the first time I'd gone in a really long time, maybe like two years. I love scuba diving, but and I've been on a number of dives, maybe sixty dives. But it's been there was a gap in my scuba resume, and the first one was really intense, really big drift dive. I've never experienced anything like that. I had so many cuts and bruises from being battered along the bottom of the, the ocean floor. That was, was a weird way to start scuba diving again after
0: a, a long hiatus. Wow. Wow. So, but you saw the Komodo dragons. Oh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, Ben, at this point, are you ready to close this out with some lightning round questions? That I am. Let's do it. All right, what is one book that you would recommend to people that's really influenced you over the years? Tim Ferriss, Tools of Titans. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend?
1: Uh, Pomodoro Timer. The one I used is Get Focused. Awesome.
0: What is a stress management technique that you use to deal with alleviating stress in your life? Meditation. Meditation.
1: Breathing exercises, either awesome.
0: or. Awesome. What is a tip that you have for optimizing productivity to get more stuff done? Prioritize sleep
1: would be one. Yeah, the biggest ones there is like prioritize sleep, eat enough veggies, stay active. Those are the big ones that kind of help keep your, your body ready for these things.
0: Okay, as the fittest man in Thailand, uh, and probably the fittest man in a lot of other places you go, can you talk a little bit about, or maybe just give like one main tip on how to prioritize fitness and how to stay fit while you are traveling?
1: Sure. Do it. That's it. Consistency. I mean, you, you don't need any uh, equipment. Just have the mindset that you're a person that works out consistently and make it happen.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Last question. If you were to give advice to your 18-year-old self, knowing everything that you know now and having experienced everything, what would you say to 18-year-old Ben? Man,
1: that's a tough one. Uh, Advice to my 18-year-old self? Learn the guitar. I would have liked to learn the guitar. (laughs)
0: Have one more uh, skill <laughs> in your repertoire yeah. to bust out of parties nice. and uh, all that good yeah. stuff. That's awesome, man. I love it. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being here today, man. This is really a blast to have you on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. All right. Good night, everybody. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.
1: If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one
0: for free. At TheMaverickShow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at TheMaverickShow.com forward slash audiobook.